This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Paying for college, it's a hurdle, especially if you have to borrow. 45 million Americans owe an average of $37,000 each in student loans. That's enough to pay a year's salary for roughly 27 million teachers. So it's no wonder that many former students struggle to make their monthly loan payments. And one reason that some politicians are now pressing to have those loans forgiven. They say doing that would stimulate the economy and would free up those graduates to pursue their own goals in life. Others say it's a terrible idea that canceling student debt would burden all taxpayers with the costs of college, whether they went to college or not, that it would do nothing to address the soaring costs of higher education and would benefit wealthy borrowers who don't need their student loans canceled. So here's the debate. Should America forgive student debt? Arguing for the yes answer to that question is Ashley Harrington, a federal advocacy director and senior counsel at the Center for Responsible Lending. Her partner in the debate, Dalia Jimenez, a professor at the University of California Irvine School of Law and director of the Student Loan Law Initiative. Opposing them, arguing that student debt should not be forgiven en masse, Beth Akers, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and former economist with the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. Akers is also co-author of Game of Loans and author of the forthcoming book, Making College Pay, an economist explains how to make a smart bet on higher education. And her partner in the debate is Nick Gillespie. Nick is editor-at-large at Reason, a libertarian magazine, and co-author of The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. So here we are, all four of us together. I want to thank uh, Dalye and Ashley and Beth and Nick for joining us live. How are all of you? I hope you're well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us, yeah. It's great to have you. And let's just get started with round one. Round one is comprised of opening statements from each debater in turn. Our motion, again, is forgive student debt. And first up to speak for the motion, here is Ashley Harrington. Ashley, the screen is all yours. Thanks, John. We must cancel student debt. We are at $1.7 trillion for 44 million people. And while so many of us were told that this is good debt, the kind of debt that helps you, that helps you build financial security and well-being, that is not the experience of so many of those 44 million. Student debt is burdening our society in ways that we don't even fully understand. And it is disproportionately weighing on borrowers of color. Black borrowers in particular, who are more likely to borrow, to borrow more, and to struggle in repayment. And that is the direct result of centuries of racially exclusionary policies and practices that continue to this day. Cancellation will disproportionately help those borrowers and other low-income, low-wealth borrowers who believed the idea that this debt would help them, but the promise of that And the promise of the Higher Education Act that Lyndon B. Johnson worked so hard for in 1965 has not been met. This is also an economic issue. Canceling student debt will put tens of billions of dollars back into the economy over the next decade. If we want to advance racial equity, 
If we want to provide an economic stimulus that will help everyone, because everyone is helped if more money is in, goes into the economy. Everyone is helped if, these, if folks can buy houses, start businesses, save for retirement. That impacts all of us. It's also a solution that is easier to, so much easier to accomplish than other policy solutions. We all watched as we waited six, nine months for $600 checks and, the, and another stimulus package. President Biden can cancel student debt on his own using the same authority that President Trump used last year when he canceled student debt payments and waived interest. We are at, we are at a place in this economy and in, and in our country that is unprecedented. And so there has to be a solution that is bold and meets the moment. That's why you should vote with us to cancel student debt. Thank you, Ashley Harrington. Our next debater will be arguing against the motion to cancel student debt. Here is Nick Gillespie. Nick, the screen is yours. Thanks very much. You know, I, I come to this as a beneficiary of student loans. I took out student loans to pay for my undergrad, uh, as well as my master's and PhD level programs. And without student loans, I may not have been able to go to college or certainly not in exactly the same time frame. So I understand the program and I've benefited from it. I'm urging you to join myself and Beth to say, no, don't cancel student debt en masse. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is because we are mistaking an aggregate number for the effect on individual people, which is generally extremely beneficial and very manageable. So let me uh, put some uh, some human face on that. About 56% of people who graduate with a BA have some student loan. The average student loan is about $28,800, according to the College Board. Uh, the median is actually significantly lower, but let's use that higher average number. Uh, at current interest rates for student loans, for federal student loans, you pay back in 10 years, that works out to about $275 a month. Uh, what happens with that? When you go to college, you increase your lifetime earnings somewhere between $250,000 to a $1 million. Uh, depending on, you can, there are many, many other measures that are somewhere in between that. But it is a smart move to go to college. And it is a smart move to take out $28,800 in order to do it because you're going to be making so much more money. One of my colleagues at Reason, Peter Suderman, has noted that annually a college graduate makes about $17,000 more per year than a high school graduate. Um, I benefited from that. I was able to enrich my uh, human capital on that. You'll hear from people like Bernie Sanders that he's met people who have $300,000 in student debt. Half of all the dollars in student debt is for graduate school. And much of that is for things like law school and medical school. We don't have to forgive people's debt if they're going to law school or medical school, right? Or graduate school, more generally speaking, I would say. And we don't have to forgive everybody's debt uh, because some people are struggling to repay their debt. I like the idea of helping poor people. I grew up lower middle class. I benefited from some financial aid. It helped me get to a place where now I'm paying far more in taxes than I would be otherwise. At my current state, I do not need relief from student debt, uh, from either that of you know my kids or whatnot. And it would be insane in a moment when we have a unprecedented national debt to say people who are making $100,000 a year, $200,000 a year, a million dollars a year, hey, you don't have to pay your student debt, which is the type of proposal that's in front of us. If there are targeted people who we can help give them more money so that they can 
get the opportunity to participate more fully in society, that means lower income people, that's a different issue than saying, you know what, let's forgive millionaires and their kids their student debt. Rather, focus on the benefits of going to college, taking out debt to get through it, and then figuring out how to live the life that you want to as fully as possible. So don't forgive student debt for everyone. Uh, if anything, what we need to do is to make uh, college more affordable in ways that getting rid of student don't won't live, you know, won't even address. So please don't cancel student debt. Thank you, Nick Gillespie. Next up on screen, uh, she'll be making an opening statement in support of the resolution for give student debt. Here is Dalia Jimenez. Dalia, the screen is yours. Hi, thanks everyone. Um, I'm going to agree with Nick on the proposition that uh, student debt helps many. Um, it helped me as well um, as an immigrant, but it really doesn't help uh, everyone. And it particularly disproportionately does not help black and brown students. Black families earn just 80% of what white families with the same level of education do. And black women earn just 63 cents on the dollar that is paid to white men with the same degree. So they have to obtain the same or even more credentials than white people do to earn less than they do. And they begin, because of centuries of racial exclusion, they begin behind. The idea that they have to take this bet that is quite risky, particularly for black and brown people, has been a mistake. It has been a policy mistake. It is failed policy. We need to stop, we need to forgive student debt, and we need to stop using student debt as the only way that poor people can get ahead in this country. We need to stop doing that, so it's a separate debate. But right now, we have 44 million people who have student debt. And yes, some of them have hundreds of thousands of dollars and they will be fine. I was one of those lucky. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, I am fine. I do not need you to forgive my student debt. I already paid my student debt. I don't want anyone to have to go through that if they are struggling. I don't want anyone to have to go to default if they are struggling. And we can right now, as Ashley said, President Biden can do this by directing the, the Secretary of Education to forgive the debt of as many students as he would like. Um, the education is a public good. We want people with education. We want, they, they have better health. They're less likely to be involved in criminal issues. They pay more in taxes. They're more engaged in political and civic life. We need an educated public. But deciding to support higher education by forcing students who couldn't afford it to take out loans, we made a mistake. And as tuitions have soared and we told young people they need to go get a degree or multiple degrees to succeed, that's what they've done. And yet here we are, 1.7 trillion and continuing to rise with no end in sight. And now we are in the middle of another crisis where black and brown people are affected disproportionately. And we have, you know, right now we're sort of at a stopgap. People are, are kind of Many of them are holding on um, to see what happens. This is the time to do it. We have other programs, in, uh, income driven repayment, et cetera, which are essentially on paper, uh, a kind of cancellation. But really it's a cancellation only for people who can jump through a million hoops, who do the right paperwork every year. Um, and only if they do this for many, for decades, literally. And it is just wrong to tell these people that they need to hold on for this long in order to forgive their student debt, which they are struggling with paying, and it would affect the economy positively immediately. It would actually put um, a number of people, uh, black and brown people in particular, into positive wealth territory, where right now they're in negative wealth. 
um, we are also spending way too much money to service this debt. Okay, the Department of Education doesn't actually release many numbers, but as far as we can tell, they are in bankruptcy, for example, they spend thousands of dollars so that a person who owes a couple of thousand, $5,000, $10,000, um, does not get that forgiven in bankruptcy because it is difficult to do it. And the Department of Education often opposes those um, cases and they spend thousands of dollars to do it. They're squeezing blood from a stone. It is not going to work. We should just forgive student debt. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. Our final opening statement is against the resolution to forgive student debt. Beth Akers, the screen is yours. Thank you. Ah, forgiving student debt. It's the policy sledgehammer that we have now on the table as a solution to all that ails higher education. The problem is, is that what we need is a much more nuanced solution. And there are two primary reasons for that that I want to argue right now. First, people with student debt are not this homogenous group of economically downtrodden individuals that is often characterized in the media. What we know is that children from higher income families actually take on more student debt than children from more disadvantaged families. That's because they go to school longer, they go to more expensive schools, and they often go on to graduate school. The other fact is that more than half of the outstanding student loan balance in the economy today is held by people who are in the top 40% of the income distribution. What that means is that if we were to forgive this debt, this would be a hugely regressive policy. Yes, people with low income would benefit, but people with high income would actually benefit statistically much more. To me, that's a very poor way of crafting a solution. And the last thing is that Um, We see that people who are defaulting and actually really struggling on these loans are not those six-digit borrowers that you often read about in the newspaper. What we see is that the ones who are hurting are people with small balances. Statistically, the people with less than $5,000 in student debt are, are the most likely to default on their student loans. That's because they don't have the benefit of a degree to go out into the labor market and have the extra earnings to make that repayment affordable. Here's the other thing I'm worried about. If we do this, things are about to get way worse. So we've we've had uh, uh, my fellow debaters referencing tuition inflation as a problem, um, over borrowing, people people using the, the loan system to finance their entire education. These are concerning things today. What happens if we wipe away all of the student debt today to the student who's going to college tomorrow? 
If we have mass cancellation today, very likely in the next few years, we're going to have tremendous pressure building up on politicians who will just go ahead and do that again. The next effect of that is that we've got colleges with students coming to them saying, I've got all this cash to spend through the federal lending program, and the colleges are going to increase their prices. So the problem of out-of-control tuition inflation that we're already seeing today will only be exacerbated by the problem that people are able to borrow with the expectation that they're not going to have to pay it back. So we're compounding the problems that we all see as core problems today. And that's why I think that we need to vote no student loan cancellation. We need a much more nuanced solution. Thank you very much, Beth Akers. And that concludes round one of our Intelligence Square debate, where our resolution is forgive student debt. And what I think I heard in the opening round was definitely some areas of agreement. I think uh, everybody on the panel agrees that college has become ridiculously expensive. Uh, I think everybody agrees that college, at least in theory, is a ticket to a better life, to more opportunity, potentially to higher incomes, depending on uh, their status and situation. So there's some agreement there. But there's clearly disagreement on the past and the present effects of um, the loan programs that have been in effect since the the mid-1960s. And I want to take to you, Ashley, the question, your opponents are, what I hear them opposing is a kind of present-day mass forgiveness of debt, which is to some degree on the table as a result of uh, recent political campaigns in the Democratic Party. And your opponents are saying across the board doesn't make sense. We should be targeting individuals if we're going to forgive because not everybody needs it. Then I heard your argument really focused around people of color being those who are the ones who are challenged. So my question to you is, Is there some actually room for agreement in the sense that you're not actually arguing either for across the board because your focus seemed to be on people who were more challenged by being uh, economically marginalized? So what about that? Across the board is the way to go. And that's for a number of reasons. I tend to be optimistic and think that we live in a country where we can we can implement and have more than one policy solution at a time. We can absolutely cancel student debt and make lives better for millions of people and help the economy and do something about the rising cost of college and the affordability crisis. Because what's driving up tuition will not be canceling student debt. It's going to be the budget holes in the state government budgets, like after the last Great Recession and all of that and some of that cost being passed on to students and families. It's the lack of accountability for for for-profit colleges in the system that raise tuition for poor quality products and are responsible for most of the defaults and non-completions. So there are other ways to deal with the rising cost of college as being passed on to students and families, doubling the Pell Grant that we can do, and we can do these things simultaneously. Also, let's remember, income and wealth are not synonymous. And it is a very different experience at the same income level when you have generational wealth and you don't. And most people of this, in color in this country don't. Black families have a tenth of the wealth of white families. Latino families have an eighth of the wealth of white families. So this is very different. Um, I, I think we have to rem- we have to remember to put this in context. And I and, and so across the board is best because whenever a barrier is placed, whenever we make someone prove they are deserving of something, I want to be very clear. The only people that we make prove they are deserving of something in this country are poor people when we want to give out benefits. We make people prove they deserve to have benefits, but we don't do that any other time. So uh, when you put up barriers, you 
automatically are putting up barriers that, that are going to leave out the marginalized, the vulnerable, right? That's the same thing that we see. Dahlia was talking about the problem with, with, for, with um, income-based forgiveness. Only 32 people have gotten IBR forgiveness. Very few people have gotten public service loan forgiveness. So, Nick Gillespie, yeah. um, what, what I think I hear Ashley saying is across the board is sort of the way to get it done. Um, because uh, I, I think what I heard actually arguing is that um, it, it, it removes the barrier for people to have to prove that they need it if if the program can be just... And John, I just want to say, we're sure. advocating $50,000 of cancellation per borrower. Okay, which is going to take care of most undergraduate. Only 2% of undergrads have more than 50% in student loans. Um, but again, as uh, Beth was talking about, people that that includes a huge number of rich people. And by rich people, let's say people who are making fifty percent more than the median household income—you know, ninety or a hundred thousand dollars. There is no reason on God's green earth that wealthy people should not be paying their way. Uh, and when they take out loans or their kids take out loans, they should pay them back. We do not have an unlimited amount of money that the government can simply start saying, we're going to start paying things off. Debt service for the federal government is already the third largest annual item on the federal budget, and it's going to soon be bigger than Medicare and defense spending. We should live in a society where people with means pay their way, and then we help people who need help in order to participate fully in society. I mean, I want to jump in there on this idea that, uh, you know, the rich people are taking advantage of student debt, and, and maybe they are, but the point is that they're rich, and so they have wealth to fall back on if they're in default. The rest of the of, of people do not. If we forgive $50,000, $93% of the lowest income black households with student debt would experience total debt relief. And 75% of all borrowers would not owe any money. Would people who have wealth and or inc- high incomes also get some of that debt forgiven if you do it as an across the board? Yes. And you want them to pay? You know, we have a system to do that. It's called the tax code. Okay, if you want them to pay, you take the money out that way and doing means testing or some other um, or some other way of of basically putting hoops and uh, and hurdles in front of what is primarily black and brown people um, in order for them to get forgiveness for a debt that we never let go. Student debt, federal student debt has no statute of limitations. The student, the, the federal government can take your Social Security money, can take your tax refund. I mean, this is just. It's it's give it's draining young people of hope. We need to do it just so that they have hope. And it cannot just be to forgive student debt. I agree with Beth. We can't just do that and then continue on our merry way. We're just delaying the inevitable of the same thing happening again. No, we need to change how we fund education. And we need to do that by actually um, looking at what colleges are, or what schools are actually helping students and funding them, not funding individuals and not funding for-profit colleges through individuals. The conversation here is matches the conversation that I see more broadly on this issue, and it's suggesting that student debt as it is today is totally inescapable. You may even have heard that you can't even get rid of student debt in bankruptcy, but the reality is that that's because we already have in place a safety net for borrowers that makes it so that if monthly payments are unaffordable, they can be lowered based on how much you're earning without penalty. 
If those monthly payments remain unaffordable for 20 years, a borrower then has their entire balance forgiven, and we are about to see with the passage of the stimulus bill that there is no longer a tax bill that comes along with that for the people who receive that benefit. This is a huge benefit, and it's actually very well crafted to ensure that somebody who goes to college, makes that investment, but doesn't see that return, they're not stuck underwater on their student loans for their lifetime. What kind of sort of realistic, real-world monthly payment are we talking about a person needing to make? Is it sort of in the $75 range a month or more in the $400 range a month? The monthly payment is a fixed percentage of their disposable income, which is calculated as the excess over um, some modest level that is set aside for for earnings, um, for, for living expenses. The problem with this program is that there's a variety of different parameters. Different people have different eligibility for different rules. It's a mess and it absolutely needs reform. But that reform is the sort of nuanced solution that I'm talking about. So I, I want to take the scenario you painted to, to Ashley, because Ashley, what I think I hear Beth saying is that even for people who are burdened, she's suggesting there's a there's a way to survive it now um, and, and ultimately a way to get out from under it, though it might take a couple of decades, but that it sort of a suggestion that it's livable as opposed to crushing. Um, so what, what, what's your response to that? I mean, I think surviving, right? Why wouldn't we want people to thrive? Why wouldn't we want our economy to thrive? 20 years into repayment, the typical Black borrower still owes 95% of their original balance. All right, Beth, I want to take a question to you. Your opponents, again, I think in Ashley's opening comment, she's sort of alluding to the idea of of an individual's education not just being about that individual, but it's actually a public good that that individual, number one, uh, if by being educated, uh, number one, can be a, a, a taxpayer, um, contribute to um, the economy, um, just contribute socially. And also that being relieved of the tax burden frees that money up to be to, to become a stimulus in itself in the economy. Not I, I, Now, Ashley didn't say it would pay for it, itself fully, but she said that it's a positive benefit to the economy to have people have more money in their pocket to be able to spend more. I just want to ask you to address that part of her argument. Sure. So... Um, this is this is a common belief that student debt would actually be a really effective stimulus, which is particularly important right now. We're in, we're in a depressed economy. The problem, again, is actually what I mentioned before about the regressivity of the policy. When economists craft stimulus programs, they cut checks and send them to people who have the lowest income in the economy. Because the way that stimulus works is that you need people to go out and spend that money and for, for it to actually have a stimulating effect on the economy. When you give money to more wealthy people, it has a lower multiplier. They, they go less into the community and spend and, and it creates fewer jobs and, and fewer sales and things like that. And so student loan cancellation has that same problem. Since a lot of it goes to very well-off people, it's really inefficient because they aren't the ones who are going to go out and stimulate the economy. The other problem is that let's say we were to forgive the whole thing. That's $1.7 trillion. Student loans are are totally different from that number, from what people see on a month-to-month basis. So we may be alleviating a $200 a month payment for somebody with a decent amount of debt. It's costing us, again, that $1.7 trillion, but we're only getting a small fraction of that stimulus today because of the way that people have in their cash flows only have to manage a monthly payment on their student loan. So is it a stimulus? Yeah. Does it address racial wealth inequality? Yes. 
Does it do these things very, very, very inefficiently? Yes. And so the problem is if, we're, if those are the problems we're trying to solve, there are more direct solutions to those problems than student loan cancellation. Ashley, I'd like to let you respond to that. Well, I think we've got to be very careful to say from our perch and our position in our lives that a $200 monthly payment is not hard. I think we've got to be, that actually is hard for a lot of people who are struggling. So I think we've got to be very clear about that, that people have different levels of what is considered a struggle. And there's a lot of people who are absolutely struggling to make their payments. Um, There's been numerous studies done that show the economic benefits of cancellation and how that will be put back into the economy over the years. I, I, and I think we've also laid out how it's not just rich, wealthy people and very and, and the majority of people who will get these benefits are low income, low wealth people. Student debt, the balances themselves, having student debt add to the cost of credit over the course of someone's life. It prevents them from saving. It affects their ability to get a home. They can't save for a down payment. It also means that that money is determining their debt to income ratio when they want to qualify for a mortgage. And we just saw news that housing prices are skyrocketing. So if people have a bunch of student debt and the house, the houses cost more and they can't get a loan to get it because they can't qualify and they couldn't even save for a down payment. Again, we all are impacted by a housing market that doesn't work, as we saw in 2008. I don't think like we the housing market is a central piece of our economy. And if people can't participate in that fully, we are all impacted. So so, Nick, I I noted in your opening argument that you painted a different picture of what it means, at, at least it did for you, in what it meant to take on debt and then how that leveraged you same into more opportunity in your life and and Ashley is point, painting a picture of somebody being really really constrained really confined by that debt to be able to have opportunity in life so and and and, and I I think there's something very compelling to the way Ashley is describing it so does it come down to the fact that this is really really individual or is there a general statement to be made? 56% of people who graduate from college have student loans. So it's a, a slim majority, right? The average payment is about $300 a month. For somebody who's poor, that's really bad. But it's also true. If you go to college, you get most of the benefits of a college education, which includes a million dollars or more, you know, on average in lifetime earnings, uh, $17,000 more in annual income over time. You are un- likely to be unemployed at half of whatever the unemployment rate is. You get a huge amount of benefits, and it should be a very basic moral principle, I think, in society that a person who gets most of the benefits of something pays most of the cost of that. And that's what student loans allow people to do. They allow many people to have access to higher education in a way that makes it easier for them. It's also true if you look over the past decade, you know, we're talking about student loan. The actual amount of student loan going out has been declining for a decade. Uh, places like community college, two-year colleges, everywhere in the country, you can qualify basically for free to go to the first two years of college for free. There have been a lot of adjustments 
to the ways in which people have access to higher education. It is not a system that is great. And I would, I'll, I, in my closing remarks, I'll talk a little bit about that. When we talk about rising costs, we're not talking about rising costs everywhere. We're talking about rising costs at elite institutions. That's not going to be addressed by getting rid of college, uh, you know, uh, getting rid of college debt. But the fact of the matter is it makes sense to go to college and it makes sense to take out reasonable amounts of, of money to do that. There are co- colleges at every cost po- point possible, and it's far more important that you go to college rather than which college you go to. All right, Dalia. So I, I think we're saying kind of we're, we're talking about different people. Um, Nick is talking about the average person. He's really talking about the average white person. 40% of all borrowers, including 54% of black students, do not finish college. They do not get that million dollars in lifetime earnings. They instead get student debt that they're supposed to pay for at least 20 years. And only if they jump all the right hoops every single year, paperwork burdens to do IDR. We can't do the And, and so Nick says, oh, we can't spend money forever. I agree. We can't spend money forever on everything. But now when it's time, there's all these people suffering. We say, oh, no, I'm sorry. Like, we already spent too much money. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. I want to jump in with a question that 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 is related to where we are in the conversation, but was was inspired mostly by by Ashley's opening and also um supplemented by by what Dalia had to say and that is that the the two of you have have made the case that attacking this issue including a broad-based solution is has the important benefit of addressing social injustice of writing a social injustice that in fact that the the segment of the population that is more likely to struggle is more likely to be black than white, for example. And there there was a paper that you wrote, Dalia, uh, which I actually recommend you published last year, goes into sort of lays out a very very detailed uh, analysis of the situation. But there were some statistics you use. You 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 repeatedly point out this disparity. So you're talking about um, students who borrow federal federal loans but don't complete their education. Um, uh, and then default. So you said that that happens to 38% of the, 38% of white students who borrow federal loans but did not complete their education's default. 65% of similarly situated black students have the same situation. So it's it's roughly only two thirds of white students are in that situation compared to black students. And my question is, and I know this is a very hypothetical, but if there were not this disparity, if if it were more evenly spread, would you still be arguing for for wiping out student debt if if there were not the social justice element, which seems to be really really central to your argument? And I know that that's maybe a meaningless if, but I I'm just trying to sort of get at the principle of whether it's primarily for you because of the social injustice, or is it more broadly just about education, the value of public education as a public good, etc. It's hard to answer that question because it, it just it's it's both. And you can't, we don't even know how if we even tried, we could get to a truly post-racial society. I mean, are we talking reparations? Like, I mean, how do we get there? So it's really hard to just wipe that away, pretend it doesn't exist because it does. And 
the black person who doesn't graduate continues to be a black person, go into the labor market that way and, you know, uh, get lower earnings as a result. I think, you know, it, it's it's just not I, possible. I, I guess I'm asking because your opponents keep arguing, you know, well-off white people don't need this. So I, I would, if I may, I'm, I'm the libertarian, which means I'm also a closet Marxist, well-off people. I, I insist on a class-based uh, argument, at least for Okay, well-off for people me. don't need this. Well-off does not just include income. Okay, you can't, it can't just be that you're, you're making, <laughs> you, just, you just can't, you, you can't. Income and wealth are not the same thing. I and you certainly mentioned, you mentioned, you mentioned the elite schools, Nick, right? So Harvard, the quote unquote quintessential elite school, only 3% of folks at Harvard borrow, 3%. So this is not who we're talking about. We are talking about the vast majority of people who like that, that we have to have a very realistic conversation about what student debt looks like and what student borrowers look like. And it is just not the case that there are all these elite school graduates, these rich, wealthy people who have student debt. They don't. They don't because their parents helped them. Right. They had intergenerational wealth. So I, I, I just think you can't make these these these. Wait, these. wait. I'm, I can tell you myself. I started in the hole. I had a negative value when I went to college. I put money away for my college uh, for my kids college. They did not take out any loans. So, you know, I, I understand very clearly the difference between income and wealth. And I also understand at a certain point when you are making a certain amount of income, you get to be called wealthy, whether or not you come from the Rockefellers or something like that. And again, this if, if this argument, I mean, why should college cost anything to any student? I mean, the, the way that you're talking about things is as if, well, student debt, nobody should pay debt to go to college or so. I mean, like, what is the pricing mechanism here? What, where, where, where is the stopping point for just saying the government should provide everything that everybody wants can, in every I, circumstance? I, 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 Ashley, I want to step in because we have a little bit of time left, and the last run has really been you and Nick, and Daye and Sorry. Beth have not really had a chance. So I want to give them a chance to enter the conversation at whatever level they would like to at this point. And uh, since Nick had the last uh, few minutes, Dalia, I want to go to your side and let you jump into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to step back a little bit and just talk about how this is not the way we want to fund higher education. I think it's important for the federal government to be involved in higher education. It's important for them to support it. Debt is not the way. If you want to control tuition, if you want you know people to be able to go to college affordably and you think there's a runaway tuition problem, you don't give 44 million people money to go shop wherever and you don't allow basically anyone who has any school that has, uh, you know, a pulse, like someone, someone behind it, um, to, to obtain student loans. You give it to some and you supervise and you control and you, um, you, you can exert your influence that way. So there are ways to control. And I agree, we cannot just forgive student debt. And there would be, if President Biden were to take this $50,000, um, you know, action tomorrow, there would be a push you could say Beth talked about it as if there would be a push for people to say, well, what am I going to do now? I don't need to. I can take on debt because it'll be forgiven. But there there also be the push for, hey, we need to rethink how we're doing this. And it is long overdue. Congress needs to step in, reauthorize the Higher Education Act and actually take control of what's happening here. And Beth, I think I'm going to give you the final word in this round. 
Sure. I want to address the discussion about the social justice issue related to student debt cancellation. I'm absolutely sympathetic to the concerns that our opponents have today um, regarding wealth disparities and disparities in opportunity across different racial groups. The problem I have is that this is the wrong mechanism for fixing that problem. What we see is a symptom of that problem showing up in the student loan space and the outcomes that people are facing with education outcomes and with their borrowing outcomes. Uh, But we need to address that problem more directly, perhaps with reparations or through grant aid on the front end of education. I'm not opposed to either of those things, but I'm absolutely opposed to trying to do that through this because I just think it's the wrong way to get it done. Okay, I think I see the beginning of perhaps some common ground emerging, but we're not going to be able to get into that because that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is forgive student debt. Now we move on to round three, and round three uh, will be brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Those statements will be two minutes each. So let's move on to closing statements. First, making her final argument for the motion, forgive student debt. Here is Ashley Harrington. $1.7 trillion, 44 million people is unsustainable. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And tinkering at the margins is no longer an acceptable response when we are in and in a recession and in a pandemic, and this is an this is a time that none of none of us were prepared for or ever that saw coming. It is no longer okay to just do the bare minimum and expect people to get along. They are not getting along, and our economy is impacted by it. It's not just the forty four million. It's their families, it's their communities, it's our entire society. And we can't get away from that. Yes, this is not the end-all, be-all solution to society's ills or even to higher education ills. But it is, it has to be part of the solution. It is the first step that enables us to do better, to create a more equitable system where everyone doesn't have to take out 30 grand in debt to get through it and where black and brown people don't have to stay in repayment for 20 plus years, where interest doesn't continue to grow, where people actually get to reap the benefits of their hard work. And we also get to reap the benefits because it is a public good. We can do so much. This is the time for bold action. If we can do a $1.7 trillion tax cut, if we can put billion hundreds of billions of dollars into small business in a way that has never been done before, we can absolutely do something about the student debt crisis that is plaguing 44 million people. And we can fix it so that we don't end up here again. There are many ways and many of us are agreed on how to do that. But the first step is canceling student debt and $50,000 per borrower will have a tremendous impact that will be felt across the board. Thank you, Ashley Harrington. Our next statement, closing statement, comes from Nick Gillespie. He will be arguing against the resolution. Yeah, I am against uh, ubiquitous or, you know, uh, student loan debt forgiveness because I think it mistakes, first, the reality, the social reality. Again, 56% of people, uh, of students, graduate college with student debt. Uh, The typical payment is about $300 a year. Uh, $300 a month. And if I said to you, I'm going to help you boost your earnings by $250,000, $500,000, a million dollars over the course of your year, and you're going to have to take out some debt, that's actually a smart move. And again, not everybody does that. And the median student debt 
is much lower than $30,000 or $300 a month. We need to have a system that allows people to participate fully in higher education. One sign that we're doing well on that is that consistently the number of people who graduate high school who directly enroll in some form of higher education is high. It's around 70%, and it's been creeping up over the past several decades. That's a good sign. We can make college cheaper and more affordable by giving grants to low-income people and people who need help. We can also increase the amount of supply of higher education, which never gets talked about. But that's the proven way to reduce prices when there's rising demand. But to say simply, we're going to wipe out money that people have voluntarily entered uh, you know, into a relationship to, to pay and to have is problematic. Um, it, it sets up a bad precedent. It is an insult to people who have saved hard, including low-income people who have saved hard and scrimped in order to go to college. This is not the way forward. We want more educated people. We want college to be more affordable. Wiping out student debt in a way that will benefit particularly rich people as much or more in dollar amounts than poor people is just a missed opportunity and the wrong direction. So please don't vote to get rid of student debt. Thank you, Nicholas B. And we move forward with closing statements. Next up will be Dalia Jimenez, who is arguing for the resolution to forgive student debt. Equal access to education opportunity is a civil right. Unfortunately, we have um, we have not been doing very well in do, in giving equal access to educational opportunity. Uh, Nick talks about the number, the amount of money that someone can expect to earn after they get a college degree. Well, 40% of borrowers do not get a college degree. 56% of black borrowers do not get a college degree. They do not see those lifetime earnings. They don't see, and they never see them, the number that he's talking about, because that number is primarily based on white people. People earning $100,000, $200,000 a year aren't necessarily wealthy. They may be. But they're not if they don't have family wealth. And that is primarily black and brown people who do not have family wealth. I am all for grants for low income people and changing the way that we're doing our educational funding. But that doesn't help the 44 million people who had debt right now and the 11 percent who are in delinquency or who were pre-COVID. In 2019, a federal student borrower defaulted every 26 seconds. That's more than four times the rate of mortgage foreclosure. And keep in mind, default in the context of a student loan means that you did not pay for nine months. In theory, the income-driven repayment programs should mean that anyone who's struggling should not have to pay because they would not make enough money. And so they they might even have a $0 repayment that they might have to every year recertify for Um, 20 to 25 years. We are making people jump through all these hoops and meanwhile paying debt collectors, debt servicers to service all this debt that may never come in. In fact, we know for many of them that debt will never actually come into the books. It is just wrong. President Biden needs to forgive student debt and I hope that you will vote for this motion. Thank you very much, Dalia Jimenez. And finally, our last argument will be against the resolution forgive student debt. Here is Beth Akers. We live in an economy that's largely defined by capitalism. We don't have an excess of social safety nets in this country like we, like we see in some others. 
And in order for that system to be sustainable, we need to have effective mechanisms for social mobility. Higher education, college, career training, that is the core mechanism for social mobility in our economy. And it needs to be affordable. Right now, it's technically affordable because people have access to debt, but it's not completely affordable because of the risk that it puts on individuals. People need to put themselves in debt in order to make this investment and hope that it works out. We need to improve the income-driven repayment program so that we can assure people that college is not going to leave them worse off than where they started. So there's room, room to move forward in that dimension without just blowing everything up and going with a widespread student loan cancellation program. That's what we're against, not against targeted relief. People who are struggling absolutely deserve a bailout in this space because, like I said, higher education is just so critical to the organization of our economy in that it's the most important mechanism that people have for investing in themselves and getting to a different socioeconomic status than where they were born. Look, it is absolutely not fun to be on this side of the debate. I'm a millennial. I'm, I've got friends around me who have lots of education, lots of debt, and this does not make me a very popular person with them. But I absolutely believe that it would be the wrong thing for the country to do massive loan cancellation. And so while it's an unpopular view, one that doesn't make me a lot of friends, it's one that I'm sticking with. And I really want you to vote no, that we should not cancel all the outstanding student debt in our economy. Thank you, Beth Bakers. And that concludes the final round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time for you, our listeners, to decide which side you feel has been most persuasive in this debate. You can do this by going to our website, iq2us.org, and casting your vote there. You can do this from any browser or cell phone. Again, iq, the number two, us.org. You can register your vote there as for, against, or undecided on this resolution, forgive student loan debt. And something we're doing a little bit differently this time, unlike in past debates where we announced the results of the vote immediately, this time we're going to keep the voting open to allow the listening public to vote and give us a sense of what the nation is thinking more broadly about this issue and about the debaters' arguments. And then on April 1st, we will be announcing the winner of that overall vote on our website, iq2us.org. So that's it. The competition is over. This has really been uh, an, an interesting and, and fascinating debate. And I want to say to Ashley and Beth and Dalye and Nick, thank you for uh, the way that you all did this. Um, as, as you know, um, Nick, you've debated with us before, and it's great to have uh, the, th the other three of you joining us. I hope someday we can be doing this on a live stage in front of a live audience because that energy can be terrific and the interaction uh, even, even more powerful and robust than it was here today. But even with the way it was today, I just want to say I appreciate how, how, how clearly you were actually listening to each other, even as you disagreed with each other. That's something rare these days. It's a mark of what we try to do at Intelligence Squared and um, to get people with opposing views to be able to talk to each other, disagree, make their case and do so in a respectful way. It's what we do by bringing this program to millions of listeners around the world, uh, which we do through podcasts and television and radio, and we do it all for free. It's something we care a lot about here at Intelligence Squared, which operates, I want you to know, as a nonprofit. And if anyone out there wants to learn more about what we do or watch one of the more than 200 debates we've produced so far, you can do that by going to our website. But as for this one, to all four of you, for the way you you handle this the way you heard each other out 
and nevertheless stood your ground and pushed back and pushed back hard, but did so in a way that shed light. I just want to say thank you. It's a rare thing, and all four of you were terrific at it. So thank you to all of you. Thanks, John. Thank you. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. 